This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Cliff Eidelman, composer for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm your host, Zach Moore, and I'm joined this week by Mr. Darren Moody, author and blogger extraordinaire. What's up, Darren? Ah, nothing much. How are things with yourself, Zach? Very well, very well. We're finishing up Thanksgiving week here on, on my side of the pond, and uh, back to business as usual next week. So. so Black Friday on this side of the pond. We think we were talking about this <laughs> off mic, but the wonders of, like, we've imported, we haven't imported Thanksgiving because that's a very American thing, but we still know when Black Friday is, uh, which is a very strange sensation. It's completely divorced from one from the other because uh, i think black, Fr- black friday is basically after thanksgiving sales for you guys for us it's yes, just late it, november it's it's the reverse christmas eve of christmas <laughs> the black friday uh you know and the, b- based off of star trek we do know that thanksgiving will exist in the 23rd century but we can only hope friday does not black friday does not <laughs> so <laughs> well anyway speaking of star trek which is what we're here to talk about uh darren uh if you guys are unaware he has an incredible catalog of blogs about the original series. He goes episode by episode. Uh, and then when he's done with each episode, he goes a full season review that he has. Okay, And coming across, reading through his back catalog of blogs, as I do when I'm looking to fall down a rabbit hole of, of analysis. <laughs> and on tangents. The internet, lots um, of tangents. Yeah, lots and lots, lots of, of tangents. But well, we love tangents here. So it's a good it's a good mix. I, I, I relate, man. I, I, we reach. So... <laughs> TheMovieBlog.com is Darren's blog, uh, and he did a review of season two in, in in summary. And I really liked your angle here, Darren, because because you break it down to where it was really a tale of three producers, if you will, the executive producers of the show. You had Gene Kuhn, who was there for the the lion's share of the second season. You have John Meredith Lucas, uh, who took over when he left, and they have Gene Roddenberry, who kind of came in for the last episode. <laughs> To try and spin off Assignment Earth, which is its own conversation. But then also with Gene Roddenberry, I would throw in the Omega Glory in that because that is a script that he kept pushing and pushing yeah. and pushing. And it was it was in the, the slate of initial suggestions for a pilot episode. He submitted it for, I believe, a, a Hugo Award, I believe, the Omega Glory. Now, I, I like the Omega Glory, okay? I actually it is one of the episodes oh. that I rewatched the most. Really? Ooh. There's a lot to it. You know, there, there's space... Uh, 
space stuff. No, <laughs> you see a sister ship of the Enterprise, yeah. which I always think is cool. You see Captain Ron Tracy, one of the best guest Evil actors captains, and yeah. guest stars, right? Yeah. I mean, like this guy, he best Kirk, right? And they have great hand-to-hand combat. You have location shooting. You know, you have a Star Trek morality turned up to eleven with no pretenses, like. They have just given up on any kind of allegory, and this is the United States. So Here's Constitution. the Constitution. Yeah. You know, um, Yanks and comms. I wonder who they could possibly yeah. be in the context of 1968. So it, it's not it's not a finely tuned allegory, right? But but it is a fun Star Trek adventure. And to me, I I, I think it, it it's it was very surprising to me when I got into fandom, and I was like, this people don't like this episode. I'm like, what do you mean? This is one of my favorite ones. So, uh, but I would put that, and we'll get to that. But I, I will put that in the Roddenberry category. I would for... agree with that placement of it, if not that <laughs> assessment second. of it. Yes, that's the second part of your argument. I am all on board with. Um... <laughs> so, you know, when you when you looked at season two, did you consciously kind of chop up the season this way, or when you were analyzing, it, you just like, oh, I see the shift of the stories here uh, from the second season based on who was steering the ship, as it were. Yeah, one of the things about like, and and you you're very generous there when you talk about the the reviews that I write. The one of the things that I I write the reviews about, particularly on the blog, is to help me get my thoughts down on paper. It's the same way that anybody writes. I think is that you you know it's the first draft of whatever you're thinking. So a lot of it is what you're discovering as you're going along, and a lot of it, embarrassingly enough, some of it is even like disproven by stuff that comes out afterwards. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was like the exploration of like the relationship between Roddenberry and NBC in terms of like the casting and diversity of the original series cast, which I think changed a lot of the perception and, and arguments about that. And that came out in the middle of my first season review. So I had to go like, wait, 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 does that mean I have to completely reassess everything that I wrote in the first couple of episodes about that, you know, diversity on the original Star Trek? And like, so there is, it is a process of exploration and sort of like, sort of delving into stuff and seeing it as you go. And I, I think that is kind of what I saw. Now, to be fair, coming to the second season, I'd come off the end of the first season where obviously Kuhn had been in charge for a while. So I had a bit of a sense of a unique flavor of like how he approached Star Trek and what he saw in Star Trek and how he he sort of pitched the show. And I was able to sort of carry that through. And then as I was, you know, I was following the behind the scenes stuff as I was writing and obviously as I was going, I would have had a, a very basic understanding of it before I wrote the reviews. When I was writing the reviews, I committed to doing a bunch of research inside Star Trek. Uh, the Starlog uh, magazines, which are all available online for free, I should point people to. I suspect most of your listeners know it already, but they're available at web.archive.org. And you can go back and you can browse through them. There's some fantastic like interviews with key personnel from Star Trek that would have been written, you know, in the 60s and 70s and even 80s. Yeah, there's something definitely to be said for the archival stuff that was said at the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the retrospective stuff is great. Uh, yeah. because you have the kind of the full picture, but there's nothing like getting a snapshot yeah. of like what was being said at the time of production or immediately after production when things are, you know, still fresh. Right? Yeah. And that's it. And you have that sort of like the, the sense of like the first draft of history being written where people aren't entirely sure what they're doing. And this is kind of one of the <laughs> things about Kuhn and Roddenberry in particular that I think is, is interesting. I don't know how much we want to delve into that right now, but like there's a sense watching it that you know, watching the second season and reading like commentaries from the time from people who are working on it that a lot of the people working on Star Trek, and this is entirely understandable, we should be very, very clear on this, like, this is before home video and home media was a thing. This was before, you know, sort of a sense of television as a permanent medium, where there was any sense that what you were doing week to week on television, where it was traditionally seen as, like, you know, the argument of the vast wasteland, as television was described, but as a conveyor belt mm-hmm. system, where your job producing television was to get one hour or 45 minutes or 50 minutes of footage to the studio and network so that they could release it, package advertising with it, pay you and you could move on to doing the next one and there was no sense of like permanence to this there's no sense that like 
nobody, very few people producing Star Trek at the time would have thought that in 20 or 30 years time, 50 years time, people would be looking years, back yeah. Yeah, and going to make you feel old. Like, But even that nobody would have thought, I think, five years down the line, people would still be talking about Star Trek. And there's a sense that like that's a certain amount of how Kuhn approached it, as opposed to Roddenberry, where with Roddenberry, you had a sense like from the outset that he believed he was doing something bigger um, than regular television. And you have this sort of like clash between the two. And it's kind of interesting because you get a lot more kind of candidness, I think, in the moment from the people. Like, I think when they're coming off a project or when they're talking about a project in real time, while you have a lot of like advertising fluff beforehand, in the immediate aftermath, you get a sort of like a a kind of a straightforwardness and honesty and a sort of like a, a rigorousness that when you're, and as you point out, when you're doing in retrospective, there's a tendency to like mythologize. And a tendency. Little did they know they were taking the first steps yeah, yeah, to an it. epic myth. Of, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Or even just like, even if you're a producer yourself working on it, like you want to, you want to give an interview where you're saying, oh, I, I definitely believe that Star Trek would endure for 50 years. I knew when I was working on it that it was going to last forever. And there's a sense that, like, when you're looking back on a project like that, and it's entirely understandable and entirely relatable, but there's a sense that, like, as you get further from it, you what you're what you're telling or what's told about it is less the truth and more like the perpetuation of the myth. You know, it's no longer well, we shot this scene. It's we took that one step, as you pointed out, and it becomes <laughs> something larger. And while that's fun to discuss and pick at and sort of like you know deconstruct and analyze, yeah, th- those sort of accounts of that time are, are fascinating um and in those magazines those fan journals they're great to read now t- taking a, a step back to what you you had said something you kind of mentioned which which i think was interesting which is something i don't i don't actually don't think we've discussed here on standard but so listeners might not be entirely familiar with what you're referring to but the uh, the diversity uh mandate if you will from nbc uh, the, about Star Trek. Can you, can you speak on that just for a second? Because I, f- I find that a fascinating revelation as well. It, it is. This this came out, and again, like it's possible that people knew about this in the background for years and years and years, but I think this came out about five years ago, or it became a bigger deal five years ago, where you had this exploration. Roddenberry, and again, we're going to talk about Roddenberry a lot on this, and I feel the need before we do that to say that, you know, I have a great deal of respect for Roddenberry as a man who created Star Trek. And not only a man who created Star Trek, a man who perpetuated Star Trek in terms of, like, bringing it back in 1979 as the, the motion picture, and also bringing it back to television as the next generation. And I say that, you know, it was his idea, he really pushed for it, and he genuinely believed in it. And I say that with the greatest amount of respect, because I also have, like a lot of Star Trek fans... A lot of very mixed feelings about Roddenberry, particularly with regards to, as I described, the process of myth-making that he does. Mm-hmm. And a large part of the myth-making that Roddenberry did was to argue that as far as he was concerned with Star Trek, he wanted it to be a bold, diverse statement, a philosophical statement for mankind in the future. And the idea was that he would create a show where you would have, you know, you'd have a black woman working communications, you'd have an Asian man, a Japanese man working at the helm. You know, you'd have this sort of like this sort of diverse, like, non, you know, not exclusively white future. Yeah, the and USS what, United Nations, right? That, that's it, exactly. And that's become a huge part of what Star Trek is to fans, and, and understandably so. Like, people talk about, like, Mae Jameson has talked about how seeing Uhura on the bridge of the Enterprise inspired her to become an astronaut. You know, you have Whoopi Goldberg, the story she tells about running into the, into the kitchen and saying, Mama, there's a black woman on TV, and she ain't no maid. Um, and right. it's, like, it's really touching, and it's really harrowing. And Roddenberry, like, when he was doing this sort of myth-making in the 80s, the 90s, there was a huge part of him telling this story where he was pushing for this, where he was the man who wanted this. And what you actually found out about five, ten years ago, and probably probably earlier if people have been listening to certain people, 
is this argument that actually it was NBC who wanted this diversity push. It was the evil suits. It was the corporate executives. And, you know, to be clear, they weren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts because they felt that they were creating the no, U.S. It was all about demographics. That's it, exactly. It was, it was pure demographics and it was pure numbers and it was calculations about getting audience figures up. Um, but it kind of, that's one of the examples of a case where you have the myth-making after the fact, which obscures the reality of what's happening. And in fact, like, if you doubt this, if you do question this, go back and look at the cage. Look at the primary cast in the cage, and you can see that while I think a couple of them may have Hispanic-sounding surnames, they're all very, Jose very Tyler, what are you yeah. talking about, man? That's just, that guy's as Latino as it comes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of that in there. Uh, and you can go back, and you can see an element of that. And I mean, there's a lot of that that happens throughout. And like, I mean, there, there are countless examples of Roddenberry doing this. I don't want to be too hard on the guy. But to mm. pick an example, Harlan Ellison's script for The City on the Edge of Forever, which is unfilmable for lots and lots and lots of reasons. But Roddenberry, when he was doing the convention circuit, would do things like he'd say, oh, that was the episode where Harlan Ellison had Scotty dealing drugs. And it's like, no, Harlan Ellison never had Scotty dealing drugs. You can just say Harlan Ellison gave us a script we didn't want to film. You don't have to right. say, you don't have to create this mythology around it that makes Harlan Ellison and I believe Scotty isn't even in that script, <laughs> yeah. if I recall correctly. Yeah. <laughs> He's not even in the Harlan Ellison script. It's hard to fault the guy because yeah. Roddenberry, he was a... He was a showman. He was a bust down the door producer kind of guy, yeah. you know. So of course he's going to be boisterous, and he had a lot of confidence. And, and these are the he yeah. he really you know that Star Trek wouldn't have even happened if he hadn't been this way. And it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been resurrected either because he was like I mean right. Roddenberry cultivated the fandom that kept the show alive during a lot of the so you know what you might describe as the Star Trek Dark Ages. He was the one that sort of proved that the franchise had a base. He was very active with like Susak and Bo Chimbal in terms of like getting letters written to prove to the studio that Star Trek was a viable, sustainable thing. Like. Absolutely. There's no way of like, and again, while I'm cynical of Roddenberry and I have these issues with him, I can't fault him for that. Well, it's a double-edged sword. You yeah. know, I've worked in the entertainment industry over the years and, and people ask me about certain you know talents or front of the camera, behind the camera, right? And I'm like, yeah, they're this way, but they wouldn't be where they are if they weren't that way. So, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. <laughs> it's, it's a cumulative thing. And, yeah. you know, and speaking of, you know, the, the diversity for NBC, people forget that, you know, I Spy was a big show at the time. Bill Cosby was a lead. Yeah, you know, Bill, Co the lead of the show, a co-lead, and so like to, to think that Star Trek, and it, it, you know, again, not to take away Star Trek's place from history, but it was already kind of being—it wasn't the first show to have African Americans or people who weren't white yeah. in prominent roles, and 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 Bill Cosby's role again in *I Spy* was a lead, and Michelle Nichols as Uhura was, you know, a, a, as a member of the crew, but nowhere near the importance of that top billing at all. Yeah, I mean, isn't there another example of, um, I'm trying to remember what the show is called. I think it may be called um, Julie, or sorry, either Julie or, or June or something, or Marnie even. There was a show that featuring an African-American lead earlier in the 60s as well, an African-American female lead. Uh, where she was a nurse. I'll try to dig out the reference for the show notes. Uh, but as in like, and even like you point to I Spy, I Spy, people said, and again, this is the thing where you have the myth-making about Star Trek, where you have like Plato's stepchildren, where people are like the first interracial kiss on American television. And you're like, no, I Spy had Bill Crosby kissing uh, an Asian-American woman at one point. People say, you know, worldwide, as you say, American television. And, and, and Britain, I believe they had an a interracial kiss before, yeah. even before that. Yep. So, I mean, and again, this we're is just tearing down the myths of Star Trek today on standard. <laughs> Everything you knew was a lie. No, but, no, uh, no. So, no. So, like all of this is very important. And like being <laughs> being first is, is great. And it's great to be first. But I mean, that ignores the value that doing it at all has. Like the fact mm -hmm. that Star Trek was diverse, like the fact that doesn't the fact that Gene Roddenberry wasn't the person who put a horror on the bridge or put Sulu on the bridge doesn't detract from the fact that Star Trek 
you know, meant that Mae Jameson felt she could become an astronaut or Whoopi Goldberg felt she could become an actor. Like, as, as much as you can, you know, we can pick at these things and we will, like, that's a net good. And I, you know, you can't really take that away, even if you do sort of chip a little bit at, like, the way that the mythology is built up around it, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, I just want to touch back on that because I find that was a very interesting kind of new angle to the ever un, ever unwinding onion that is Star Trek of topics, right? Yeah. That's a, a new uh, layer that came up. Now, speaking of Gene Kuhn, and you mentioned Gene Kuhn, it's interesting. He took the approach of this is going to be an episode by episode deal. We're going to make it as good as we can. It's going to be fun. It's going to be entertaining. But we're not like we're not making history here. You know, we're not making you know Aesop's fables, right? For the, the new generation, yeah. Roddenberry, the opposite, right? This is yeah. you know this is this is going to last forever, kind of thing. And some of that is boistering of like the five-year mission, so we get five years, right? Yeah. And we only got three. Uh oh, they can't cancel us. It says in the opening, it's a five-year mission, right? So that was a contract, tried. right? That was a contract. Yeah, NBC <laughs> signed that. But you know the the, the interesting thing, and, and you point this out in your in your article, is Gene Kuhn was the world builder. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's it's kind of paradoxical where he's taking things episode by episode, and this is going to be here today, gone tomorrow. Yet he is laying the foundation for Star Trek for decades to come. He, he creates the Federation and Arena, or, you know, gives it an official name. Uh, the Klingons and Aaron of Mercy, he makes them recurring antagonists in the second season. Yeah. So all these things that, that become iconic Star Trek, uh, Gene Kuhn, he's, you know, I kind of relate him to, like, the Bill Finger for, for Batman, yeah. right? Uh, if, if Bob Kane is Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn is Bill Finger, right? The, yeah. the underappreciated... Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to call him the, the mastermind or whatever, the architect of so much of what we know about Star Trek intellectual property. Yeah. So, because Bill Finger, if you didn't know, like he, he basically, Bob Kane was the artist for Batman, Bill Finger was the writer, and Bill Finger pretty much invented the look of Batman, Robin, the Joker, the Batmobile, like, like, <laughs> the Batmobile, like Commissioner any, Gordon, any. the Bat Signal, <laughs> um, the fact that Batman didn't dress in red, the fact that he had a cowl. Um, like, mm-hmm. there's a really great Ty Templeton ad, and I'll point listeners to that. If you Google Ty Templeton, Batman, Bob Kane, he does like a really, and it's a scathing, but it's a comic yes. that's basically, you, you've seen it, have you, Zach, where it's like one yes, page of what if Batman had never been like touched by anybody but Bob Kane? And it consists of Batman going, well, I wish I had a bunch of colorful criminals to fight. If only there were somebody in the police force I could talk to about this. Or some sort of signal that would call me to help. Well, I guess I'm going to walk home because I don't have a car. Yeah. <laughs> and it's him in his, in his red leotard, yeah. his, his black domino mask, and his mm. bat wings on, yeah. and that's it. And so I'll, I, and th- this is by no way to compare like Roddenberry <laughs> to Bob King, because I yeah. talk, about, t- talk about issues with your mythological <laughs> franchise heroes and creators, right? My favorite detail about Kane is that like his gravestone, like his actual gravestone where he's buried. And again, I feel bad for picking on a guy who's dead or whatever. But his gravestone basically seems to imply that, like, God himself, God the Almighty, gifted Bob Kane with the inspiration to create Batman. Um, really? That You should read it. You can Google the image of his of his gravestone. It's really something. It's very I much like... I look forward to that. I, I do joke... So, you know, <laughs> well, the, the whole thing over the years and, and the... And the uh, uh, there was a recent book that came out about it. They found Bill Finger's, like, granddaughter and, and they're finally getting bill finger credit now for creating yeah. batman or at least being associated with it because up in, for, until i believe batman v superman was the first time on screen bill finger was ever credited for you know being yeah. part of batman's creation uh 
so the joke for, <laughs> for me and my friends was it's like whenever you see something Batman related, it's just created by Bob Kane and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> he had a contract, like that was his contract. Yeah, yeah he his had dad like... was a lawyer and set him up. And yeah. I mean, I, I get it, like financially, but come on, man. Anyway, yeah. uh, the deal, the deal with Gene Kuhn though. It wasn't that way at all. It's just Gene no. Kuhn passed away in the 70s. Yeah. So by the time Star Trek had its resurgence, he wasn't around to give these interviews and be part of it. I mean, he would be right. Everybody in Star Trek circles knows Rob Justman, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and he even was in the inception of Next Gen and all that. So Gene Kuhn would have been one of those guys they did not passed away at an early age. Yeah. So it's not like Gene and, and Gene Kuhn was never kind of like brushed under the rug. I mean, Leonard Nimoy, you know, always the, the give credit where credit is due man yeah. that Leonard Nimoy was he would always mention that Gene Kuhn had been in the Klingons and this and that yeah. so so the the uh, the forgotten Gene but but just because of circumstance not yeah. really intentional in the way Bill Finger was so yeah. so be careful when I make that comparison yeah. but to me that's where my mind went when I think about you know Gene Kuhn versus Gene Roddenberry and, and I mean I mean it's it's nice it's nice that you point to uh like Leonard, Leonard Nimoy as the give credit where credit's due man you have William Shatner who is famously not not that sort of person but even he described that you pointed you used the phrase there the forgotten Gene like Sh- even Shatner has been, you know, a strong proponent of like Gene Kuhn's legacy and the fact that he, you know, he should be remembered as one of the foundational figures of the Star Trek universe. Well, speaking of Kuhn, his take, you know, for the first of these three producers of the second season, uh, he had a more you know lighthearted approach. I would say not that the stories weren't serious, but they had a certain sense of level lev- levity and humanity to them, and you see that even from his early scripts, you know, like Aaron and Mercy with Kirk and Spocker. You know, running on the run, having jokes with each other at the end of the first season. And that really carries on into the, I guess, you know, the height of that would probably be, you know, I Mud in the second season. Yeah. The, the height of the Gene Coonisms <laughs> and whatnot. Uh, so so what, what's your take on, on this on this flavor of Star Trek under Gene Coon? I'm a, I'm a huge Coon fan. In fact, I would argue that, like, Coon is the godfather of, say, Deep Space Nine uh, to a certain extent. And that one of the things that marks Coon as distinct from Roddenberry, outside of the fact that he seemed to be a much more sort of, like, you know, conveyor belt, sort of, like, working in television at the time sort of producer, is that he had a real kind of sense of... His scripts seemed to... They didn't treat the Star Trek universe as sacrosanct. They didn't treat it as, like, a, an institution to be venerated. And, in fact, you have a lot of these sort of, like, watching... The, like, you know, the season and a half or the full season between the end of the first season and, you know, late second season that Kuhn produced, you get a real sense of Kuhn sort of like picking at some of the underlying principles of Star Trek in a way that you would associate later on with, say, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, where you have a lot of like Roddenberry very earnestly seemed to believe like in the universe that he was portraying. And he was very much he was a very sort of straight laced, sort of very like military man in some respects. He had like this idea of the Federation being right. There's a famous story that I think Melinda Snodgrass tells when she was producing um, The Measure of Man, the second season, mm-hmm. where she was like, okay, so I pitched the script to the writers and the, everybody in the writer's room loved it, but they said they had to show it to Gene Roddenberry. Went to Roddenberry and he just, he hated it. And uh, she was like, so, you know, what, what what's the issue? And he's like, you can't tell this story in a Star Trek context. It doesn't make sense in the Star Trek universe. And she's like, why? What, what Like, Data is being told that he has to be taken apart by Starfleet. Why can't I tell that story? And she's like, well, you know, Data should volunteer to be taken apart by Starfleet. And then, like, that was that was his objection to it. Like, Roddenberry had this very, like, un... Like, he was very socially progressive in certain respects, but he could also be quite conservative when it came to, like, the establishment in other respects. And you can see that in some of his scripts around Vietnam, which we'll talk about in a moment. Kuhn, on the other hand, was a lot more irreverent, um... 
And he seemed to be a lot more sceptical of, say, Vietnam than I think Roddenberry was. And you can look at his scripts, like, say, for example, you pointed to the, the first season scripts, like the a Taste of Armageddon, uh, which was very much a commentary on how they reported casualties, like, from Vietnam to the point of being a biting satire. You have Errand of Mercy, which is the episode that introduced the Klingons. It's another metaphor for Vietnam. But what people generally ignore about that episode is that Kirk is portrayed as just as bad as Kor. Kirk is exactly. just as ready to get fighting and get his fists pumping. And it's very much a condemnation of that sort of Cold War attitude. And like throughout the show, you have like this recurring suggestion, even in small, even in like small little episodes that like Kuhn was suggesting that perhaps, you know, the Federation isn't as perfect as it's meant to be. Like the this, the archetypal like obstructive bureaucrat, um, like I'm thinking of Robert Fox, for example, like yeah. the um, those are like snooty upper cross Federation types. They're like they're fixtures of like Kuhn's tenure. I'm thinking like even Metamorphosis, which is an episode where like there's this official who's traveling to a planet to solve this like big, gigantic social problem that's happening. Uh, but she stays on this planet where she falls in love because people are more important um, than these huge galactic crises. And you see that throughout, like where Kuhn um, takes these things like he was a big fan of. You pointed out to like I Mud, where he, you know, and obviously the trouble with Tribbles, where he brought right. in like David uh, Gerald, who became like this huge figure in Star Trek sort of like writing circles and he encouraged him to write stories that consciously like spoofed with and played with the conventions of star trek in particular like the trouble with tribbles is again it's another gene coon cold war script it's spoofing it reduces this idea of a cold war between the klingons and the federation to this gigantic farce this comedy of manners almost where you have like <laughs> captain kirk the brave hero buried under a mound of dead teddy bears um and it's it's just it's I it's none of that before <laughs> But teddy bears. So. Yeah, but but it is. It's it's basically the two, these two powers competing for influence in this galactic sphere, and they're both turned into figures of like ridicule and figures of fun. And he does this kind of repeatedly. And there's a sense of like cynicism that runs through his work. Like he would have commissioned Mirror Mirror by Jeremy Bixby, which is an episode. And again, like a lot of this stuff people think is camp now in hindsight. Um, and Mirror Mirror is, uh, you know, like bearded Spock has become an icon for a reason, a stereo, you know, an archetypal Star Trek image for a reason, or the Mirror Universe as it became in the later Deep Space Nine episodes where it's like, a, oh, all of our cast are going to eat on the scenery for a week. Like that's the basic premise of the Mirror where, Universe. Where do you draw the line, quick aside, where do you draw the line for when the Mirror Universe episodes stop being good in Deep Space Nine? Because I think the they're second good one. all the way up Ooh. to the end. Ooh. I think I think up till Emperor's New Cloak, they're good. Really? But what about you? Wow. Yeah. I would draw the line after Crossover. I think Crossover is one of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine ever produced. And then Agreed. it's when you get when you get to the, the third season and you have, is it, it no, it's not Namera Dark. Through the Looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass, where it's mm -hmm. basically like Avery Brooks is going to have fun and you're going to have fun too. <laughs> Avery and Brooks like, as himself this week on Star Trek <laughs> Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And I mean, like, I love, like, I like a good space pirate story. And I'm really glad that Avery Brooks and the writers are having so much fun. But it's like... I, I want to just let me jump back into the story where Garrick and Odo. Well, well, there's that and there's Shattered Mirror. You know, they bring back yeah. the wife. I thought that was a great turn. They, they could have stopped there. You yeah. know, they, they, they probably they should have stopped there. <laughs> yeah. uh, Resurrection doesn't bother me as much, you know, because I, I think that's actually Beryl's best episode. <laughs> He's such a boring character. It was nice to have him see, do something else. It's the best strain um, of hepatitis. I like that. It's yeah. the best Viral episode. I, I, but, I actually like Resurrection. I'll go to Baff because Resurrection feels like it's shattered. what Shattered Mare is trying to do, which is like, you have this universe where somebody you love is still alive. How do you deal with the fact that there's someone you love and not someone you love? And Shattered Mare tries to do that while it's also like, oh, boom, there's a Defiant for some reason. Um, mm -hmm. wait, oh, we also took over the station for some reason. But I feel like <laughs> Okay, these are all valid points. I'll have to read it. <laughs> all valid points. 
points, Darren. Uh, but but I think we can both agree Emperor's New Cloak is a terrible, <laughs> yes. terrible resolution to this entire thing. Anyway, jumping back, I totally get what you're saying about Mirror Mirror. It's it's in its iconography, it's become camp, yeah. right? It's not like everyone over there had a beard, you know. I yeah. just that was that was I don't know who I don't know who made that decision if it was like Jerome Bixby or the set decorator that day or, or whoever. Yeah. But Spock having goatee was very distinctive and how you tell them apart. Yeah. And I think Spock looks cooler with goatee. Spock yeah. with beard is is, is, is is badass, I think. So. <laughs> well, Discovery Season 2 has a treat for you. Um... <laughs> I was think- As I said that, I was thinking that. Anyway, go on. But um, but yeah, so it has, it has, but like Mirror Mirror at its core is like imagining that the Federation and Starfleet with just a little tiny nudge. And it's very clearly like it's connected, like the it's very clearly like an extension of the Federation. It's not an inversion of it. And it's it's this fear that like with a little nudge, the Federation could be evil. And you see that again, like with like Kuhn's work on, for example, with Roddenberry um, on, for example, the uh, what am I thinking of here? I'm thinking of Bread and Circuses, where you have this mm. idea of contemporary America as a Roman Empire, which was a huge deal. Like there was this huge anxiety in the 60s and arguably like even through to the present day about like America's role in the world as this gigantic power and how that could be something good, but it could also be something not good, how the power that it had could be abused. And Kuhn repeatedly seemed quite anxious about that in the scripts that he wrote, where he was nervous about the idea of the Federation Starfleet as galactic peacekeepers or sort of like galactic superpowers. And there's this interesting ambivalence that sort of runs through his work or his like season and a half in there that I really, really enjoy and really, really appreciate. And I think sort of sows the seeds for what Deep Space Nine would do with Starfleet and the Federation, you know, you know, 25 years later. Speaking of Vietnam, the private little war is kind of has one foot in both sides of what you're talking about here. Cause at the end it's very melancholy. Like, yeah, we're going to beam down some more serpents for Eden, but go ahead. So that's what we got to yeah. do. It's not a perfect solution, but at the same time it is, it's kind of like, as you point out, it's like Friday's child. It's like the apple. It's like Kirk doing these massive cultural changing things, yeah. uh, which we celebrated, but should it be? You know? Yeah. Well, there, there is this anxiety and it's something that I think is a, you know, it, it's a tension between Roddenberry and Kuhn to a certain respect. Cause it's worth noting that like, you pointed to the Omega Glory, and I feel like we're gonna we're skipping over Meredith Lucas to do a direct comparison here. But in terms of the Omega Glory, as like Roddenberry's platonic ideal of what a Star Trek episode should be, and you're right, you it was one of the three stories that Roddenberry really pitched for like the first episode of Star Trek. It's like this is a mission statement for what Roddenberry sees Star Trek should be, and the other being. Well, it's women. <laughs> so take that as you will. Of course, we it ended up being where no man has gone before. But what a different, what a different reality we'd live in if they would pick one of those other two. Yeah, um, and the Omega Glory is very much it's very much in the style of a private little war, which is also Roddenberry's script, where it's like, um, well, hey, uh, we are the most powerful nation, you know, in the world or in space. I guess it's kind of our responsibility to go into these places and to ensure that, you know, other forces don't go in and meddle or cause trouble and to, like, secure the spread of liberal democracy, you know, through providing weapons, moral support and strategic, you know, instruction to these powers. And, like, there's a sense that Roddenberry, it's worth noting, by the way, that these episodes would have gone into production before the Tet Offensive. I believe that uh, A Private Little War aired the week after the Tet Offensive, which was one of the big turning points in American opinion about Vietnam, just to provide some cultural mm-hmm. context. So, like, it's not like everybody was against Vietnam um, from the outset. You know, that was one of the cases where there was a huge loss of life, and everyone was like, well, okay, what are we doing there? So in terms of, like, a TV production being there, when Roddenberry wrote The Omega Glory in, like, 1965, 66, 
it wouldn't have been a hugely controversial stance for him to be like, well, it's our job to be in Vietnam. We should be there. What we're doing is right, spreading liberal democracy. But at the same time, it's something that I think delineates him a little bit from from Kuhn. I think Kuhn was a lot more ambivalent. I think that like Errand of Mercy um, and, uh, you know, by the way, fun fact, um, Roddenberry pushed so hard for the Omega Glory to be produced but Kuhn very, very strongly did not want it to be produced. There's a story, and I think Cushman tells this in These Are the Voyages, where like during the end of the first season, they were so starved for scripts and Roddenberry kept pushing the Omega Glory forward and being like, look, guys, I have it here. It's written already. You can just rush it into production. <laughs> and like Kuhn, apparently, while you know, nobody was like, boss, your script sucks. Um, in fact, Justman tells a story in Inside Star Trek where he wrote a memo saying, boss, your script sucks, and then threw it in the bin because he thought it was so mean. Um, while nobody actually said to Roddenberry, you know, boss, your script sucks, um, Kuhn wrote two whole episodes, including Errand of Mercy, to avoid having to produce um, the Omega Glory, which is like one of those great illustrations of like how maybe he felt like that wasn't the kind of Star Trek that he wanted to produce on a weekly basis. And, like, there is a sense that, like, Roddenberry genuinely believed in, like, and he he was much less critical of American foreign policy and stuff like that. Like, it's telling, for example, he was very obsessed with Lincoln. He named his his company Lincoln Enterprises. But, like, he also wrote The Savage Curtain in the third season, which reveals that the Enterprise somehow still has protocols on board for greeting the President of the United States, should he happen to show up in space flying a giant space chair. Um, but there is that sort of like purity to Roddenberry's belief in like Americana and American righteousness and American foreign policy that I think Kood was a little bit more ambivalent about, if that makes sense. And I love how much attention the episode pays to it as well. Full dress uniform, please. <laughs> That's it, exactly. It's like it's like Kirk expects the crew to know off the top of their head how to greet the president of a country that probably hasn't existed at this stage for 200 years. Um, Kirk is an avatar for like, you know, John F. Kennedy, new frontier, like American idealism. And you just have a different prisms of looking at him. Like you, I think Roddenberry would see him as an embodiment of like the very ideals of American masculinity. And I think Kuhn, um, is a bit more cynical. Kuhn is like a bit more wary of that. He's a bit more like, well, if Kirk were this like alpha male figure, maybe he wouldn't be the best person to have in like a Cold War standoff with a bunch of aliens who are obvious stand-ins for either Russia or China, depending on how you read the Klingons. Um, and, and there is like, there's there's a lot there. And I really kind of Kuhn, and you're right, the Kuhn, there's a paradox there in that while Kuhn was like not taking it entirely seriously. And in fact, like it's argued that one of the big tensions between Roddenberry and Kuhn was the introduction of humor to the show. Um, right. In fact, like it's it's telling that like, I think Roddenberry left in the middle of the second season to write a a pilot for a Robin Hood show that was never produced. And in his absence, um, Kuhn basically like freewheeled um, iMud and The Trouble with Tribbles in back to back. Um, and while like Shatner loved it, apparently Nimoy was also a bit anxious about the use of comedy in these scripts. And apparently Roddenberry was really unhappy. And that was arguably like, again, nobody knows the exact reason why Kuhn left. There are a lot of different arguments about it. Some people said he was tired. Some people said he was, you know, exhausted, looking for better opportunities and more stability. Other people say that himself and Roddenberry had a huge argument over like the content of the show and in particular, the use of humor in the show. Uh, but yeah, like there's a sense that Kuhn was more willing to poke fun at it. Like, and again, this is where I, I kind of look at Kuhn as the godfather of Deep Space Nine because Kuhn would have been all over the Ferengi episodes. Gene L. Kuhn would have been like, if he if he was writing for like Deep Space Nine, he would have been like, yeah, more Ferengi episodes right now. Uh, and we'd be like, okay, sure, that, go with it. Um, some of them are great, right? 
Some of them are great. Sure. Yeah. Uh, they're, 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 yeah. I mean, they get a bad rap. I, I, I will say, like, when back in the day, I'm like, oh, another free episode. But nowadays, I'm like, okay, this, this is one of the. Uh, I, I can, I can afford to have a little fun with this. Yeah. One every, one out of every twenty six. Uh, but as far yeah, as the Coon Roddenberry rift, if you call it, yeah, I, I get, I, I totally get both sides because Gene Coon, he. He he's been like you know running the show. He's been the machine here yeah. that has been the, the engine of Star Trek has been running with, with him. And he's like you know let's try some stuff you know. Yeah. And Roddenberry that Roddenberry it's not the Roddenberry box we hear about in TNG, but it's a yeah. form of it back in the sixties. And then like you know oh boss is on vacation. Let's push all this stuff through that I always <laughs> want to do, but I can't do while he's here. And he comes back. He's like what have you done? So I get it if he specifically told him I don't like this. Yeah. Don't do this. This is my show. And yeah. then you leave and you come back and. You did it anyway. What the hell, man? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I understand the conflict. And, you know, who knows? We don't know. As you said, we don't know why. We yeah. don't know the reasons. But at that point, I think that we, everyone does kind of point to that situation. It's like, this is when Q is like, okay, I think I've stretched myself as far as I can yeah. here. I'm going to excuse myself. Now, he does continue on with season three under a pseudonym, uh, Lee yeah. Cronin, and contributes to several episodes there. But but this that was the end of the Gene Kuhn era of Star Trek, which, which again, you know, as you, as you said, and we said here, laid the foundation for so much Star Trek mythology to come. So, yeah. so the best era of Star Trek, arguably, I don't know. Probably my favorite consistent period of the original series, if we're being entirely honest. And I say that, like, having huge issues with individual episodes within it, like the Apple and stuff like that. But I think that, like, from beginning to end, like, this is, you're right when you say laying, like, a huge period, a huge sort of foundation for what we assume to be Star Trek. The idea, like, first of all, the idea that, like, there are other powers in the universe that are equivalent to the Federation. Because you got to keep in mind that before Kuhn came on board, the Romulans had appeared once. But the vast, like, the Star Trek universe was typically, like, small planets that looked a little bit like Earth for the purpose of allegorical storytelling, or long-dead races, or monsters, or godlike aliens. Like, under Kuhn, you had the development of the Klingons. He brought the Romulans back in the deadly years, even though they didn't appear on screen. Like, mm-hmm. he brought back, he wanted to establish a recurring antagonist for Kirk. And in fact, actually, one of the points of contention, and again, this is coming from Cushman's research into, like, memos that were sent to the studio at the time, um, one of the tensions between Kuhn and, say, Fontana, DC Fontana, um, and also Justman and also Roddenberry, was Kuhn's desire to use repeated elements. And they point out, like, for example, he wanted a recurring nemesis for Kirk as a Klingon. Um, and I think Roddenberry objected to that uh, on the basis that, like, that would make the Star Trek universe seem smaller if these two characters kept running into one another. And I can see both sides of that argument. There are also arguments about, like, the use of, like, recycled plot points in scripts. And again, this is one of the things that speaks to Kuhn, I think, seeing it as a job, as, like, a television conveyor belt job rather than something mm-hmm. that was going to last forever. Where, like, Fontana would point out that, for example, you know, he he already did um, a plot where, like, you know, a captain is out for revenge against a monster that killed his crew in, ob- in obviously in the Doomsday Machine. So why would he commission a script like Obsession, where another Starfleet captain is out for revenge against another monster that killed all his crew? And even like little smaller, like recurring motifs that would happen in episodes that like, you know, that the, the other producers were a bit wary of. And like Kuhn seemed to be, well, look, it gets the script out in time. It gets it down to the camera in time. We can film these. We can get them done. We can get them to the can and we can worry about other stuff yeah. later. The sets for, you know, Nazi Germany already exists. You know, they're not going to yeah. remember we went to an Earth planet to three weeks ago, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, there is. This is the season of the alternate Earth, right? Yeah. If there ever was one, you have, you know, you have patterns of force, 
you have Bread and Circuses, you have uh, Piece of the Action. Uh, piece of the Action, you know, It's yeah. like, well, what is on the back lot today? <laughs> <laughs> piece of the Action is the quintessential Gene L. Coon script, which is, is uh, even though it went into production after he left, and even though, again, there were some changes, I think, made to the script, it was originally going to involve, like, Klingons or Romulans, and those were stripped out. But, like, mm-hmm. a Piece of the Action is the quintessential Gene L. Coon script, because it's basically, like, what if America... And the Federation were basically equivalent to like Prohibition era gangsters. Like where Kirk shows up on a planet and I think he actually has the line. So we set it up so a boss pulls all the strings and we pull his. And you're like, wow, this is a really scathing depiction of like how American foreign policy operates through the like nexus of Star Trek. But it's also great fun. Like it's one of those scripts that you could tell like. I suspect a large part of why Shatner loved Kuhn was because Kuhn would write these scripts where Shatner could just go off the wall and he would just encourage them as opposed to like reining him in. Like the Fizbin scene or even the bit where Kirk is doing like the, you know, 1930s, like forget about it, Chicago accent and stuff like that, which is just great fun to watch. Um, and again, you can see at the same time why people like Roddenberry will be like, you're making fun of my show. What are you doing? What is the point here? What are, what are you trying to say here? And I can understand, as you point out, you can see both sides of the argument. Part of me, in in part, because I just like being sort of like impish disruptor sort of figures, is that I'm kind of like, I kind of like that Kuhn did this. I can also understand mm-hmm. why Same. that wasn't viable. <laughs> exactly. yeah. like playful and trickster and like, you know, I can, and I think that a large part of why Star Trek lasted as long as it did was because it like encompassed all of these different voices. It could be both itself and almost a parody of itself at certain points. Like it could be this sort of metaphorical extrapolation of like the best American self put in the future as Roddenberry did. But it could also, while doing that, to prevent it from being too didactic or too serious or too stern, it could also be an episode where Kirk beams down to a gangster planet and says, hey, while driving a car and like wearing a funny hat. Um, and I mean, what's what's not to like about that? Absolutely. It's just the diversity, the, the, the malleability of Star Trek is amazing here. Yeah. Final point on the Gene Kuhn era, uh, since you brought it up, it's kind of another light bulb went off in my head. I, I remember that the William Campbell had talked about how Koloth was supposed to be that ongoing, recurring nemesis for Kirk, at least as, as the way he tells it. Yeah. Uh, they wanted him to be in, you know, a, a lot of episodes, an absurd amount of episodes, is the way <laughs> is the way he tells it. Uh, and you know, I love him as Trelane, not so much a fan of him as Koloth, but that's like that's the episode. Right? The Trouble with Tribbles is kind of yeah. a it's a comedy. It's not a Klingon episode. The Klingons are in it, and they serve a function, and yeah. they're they're it's all kind of tongue in cheek, you know, but. You know, Koloth only exists because they couldn't get John Colicos back as core. Yeah. So yeah, he was supposed to be in that. He was supposed to be in Day of the Dove. You know, he was just always busy filming a movie somewhere else, and he couldn't come back. So that's why I have these three iconic <laughs> Klingon characters. Uh, but yeah, I, I 100% agree. If you run into the same guy over and over, uh, when you're when you're you know supposed to be out yeah. there exploring deep space, it would really shrink the universe. So I, yeah. I understand the lack of a recurring uh, threat like that. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that like 60s television was built in a way where you could like meaningfully build off it. Like you couldn't do something like Cisco and Dukat on Deep Space Nine in 60s television because you always like when you brought him back, he'd just be archetypal Klingon. But you just know that you met him before. You couldn't develop him over a long period of time because television at the time was episodic. So it would just be it would basically be the same like actor playing whatever role the the episode in question needed him to do. So, I mean, I don't I don't think that was the illusion of continuity. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Exactly. (laughs) Um, yeah, it, it would be equivalent to basically, I guess, Tom Locke on TNG. Yeah. You know, a handful of episodes, a memorable guy, but they just kind of the same note. Again, Andreas Kansilis was, was amazing as the yeah. part. He went on to bigger, better things for himself personally on Babylon 5 as, as Jakar. 
But if he hadn't, it would have been great to see him more on TNG. Anyway, yeah. that's where my mind went when I think about, okay, a recurring antagonist for the alien race that's a familiar face, you show yeah. up again and again. Uh, as opposed to, you know, better than better than Denise Crosby and Sela. But anyway, moving on, <laughs> back to TOS. So Gene Kuhn leaves, and then we get John Meredith Lucas. Now, he played a, a big role in some, uh, maybe not as iconic, but at least very memorable episodes of the second season. Now, now you you seem, and maybe I read you wrong, you seem a little more critical of his string of episodes maybe than, than I have. Is that, what, what's your take on Meredith Lucas' run? Uh, running the show. I don't. I don't want to seem like I don't want to seem too critical. I mean, the, the, it's worth noting the guy stepped in. Well, first of all, the guy stepped in at an extremely short notice. Um, by his telling of the accounts, he was that she summoned into Gene Alcoon's office, and Gene Alcoon asked him, "Would you like to run this show?" Um, the logic <laughs> being that I think Coon felt, or at least this is the the argument that was advanced in uh, Gushman's uh, version of Ed's, is that Coon felt like it would be an easier sell to Roddenberry for him to quit if he had somebody coming in who could like fill in for him. And mm-hmm. and Lucas is like. First of all, that's an incredibly remarkable thing to do. Stepping in to run a show in the middle of a season is a tremendous, like, it's a tremendous, like, you're you're not only in charge of keeping it on the tracks, but you're in charge of, like, maintaining a direction of momentum that was set by somebody who came before you. That's a huge amount of pressure. And, like, I have a huge amount of respect for Lucas in the same way that I have a huge amount of respect for Pillar when he came in on the third season. You know, you have the, mm. uh, was it Wagner was the executive producer for all of, like, two episodes and yes. quit before any of them aired. And, like, talk, talk, talk about the forgotten Gene. Talk about the forgotten Michael. Michael yeah. Wagner. Yeah. Although I love this, although I I love the survivors that's yeah. really one of my favorite episodes of next gen and he wrote that but yeah i mean it was the, the chaos on the bridge as the shadow documentary says continued into early yeah. season three until michael pillar got it yeah. got a hold of things yeah. yeah and i have a huge amount of respect for pillar for well first of all for pillar for what he did for star trek for you know the following decade almost after that but also like of lucas because lucas like he was lucas was one of those types he i think his he was the stepson of the guy who directed Casablanca, if I remember correctly. So he's sort of like, he had this sort of like show business in his blood almost. Um, the stepson of Michael Curtis. Uh, and he'd worked sort of in television. I think his first job in television was on Whiplash, where Roddenberry also contributed the script. He worked on shows like Mannix and stuff like that. I sort of like, he, he had this experience and he had this love of science fiction. Um, and in fact, like, I think his first contribution to the show was the script for The Changeling. And you could even argue that, like, by doing that, Lucas, you know, set the template for, like, the motion picture and the entire, oh, exactly. like, second generation of, like, Star Trek storytelling. Um, and I have a huge amount of, like, respect for him for that. And in particular, like, because I've never produced a television show. I don't think you've ever produced a television <laughs> show. Most of our listeners will never produce a television show. But, like, working on that schedule is tough in the best of circumstances. Um, stepping in without having a chance to like set up your marks and basically picking up where somebody left off, um, who left maybe not under the best of circumstances is an incredible, like that, that speaks to an incredible character and an incredible like organizational vision. And I want to say that before I get in any way critical of Lucas. So I have this, the hugest amount of respect for him. Interesting thing about Lucas though, is that I think, and this is my reading, and I can I can see that it may be entirely wrong, and I suspect that listeners may disagree with me on this. Lucas, I suspect, came from an older breed of like science fiction writer and science fiction lover, um, in that he kind of nudged the show back to a depiction of the Star Trek universe that was much more in keeping with the early first season where you had a lot of, like, dead and dying planets. You had um, a lot of societies that were less evolved. There was no real sense of, like, this idea of space caught in, like, a Cold War, as it was during the the Coon era, or as it would be in the third season. 
you had this sort of sense of like space as this vast empty expanse populated by like monsters and by disembodied and amoebas and like disembodied (laughs) brains and stuff like that and i mean like this carries through into even like the finer details of the script so i'm thinking for example of like um the immunity syndrome which is an episode that i adore but it has this really incongruous detail of a ship full of vulcans which is like it's Mm. something that feels like it came from a first season episode it doesn't really fit with this idea of the federation as an integrated body it's just like oh yeah there was a vulcan ship out there and they all screamed and it was psychic and uh we're kind of going on this sort of like 60s sci-fi vibe that's that's an interesting point because when you mentioned that in in your article that it feels like early season one and i'm like okay i guess because there's not and i see what you mean like there's no romulans there's no cleons there's none of the familiar elements that have been carrying a lot of season two uh and i was like well was that really but you're right though that those kind of incongruencies of what because now we've kind of established what starfleet is what the federation is what we're doing out here and you're right that, that always struck me as odd too like the ship of all vulcans like <laughs> that doesn't seem very federation like so <laughs> yeah. that's that's an excellent point it feels like they're still figuring it might as well have been a ship full of vulcanians right yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're still figuring it out so i, I, I got you. Fleeing I from I when you conquered our planet apparently um going yeah. back to yeah um, <laughs> But it it does feel like it's almost like they sort of threw out the Bible in a way. And it, you kind of go back to it and you can see that sort of connection between episodes like, for example, The Man Trap and Miri in the first season, where you have these worlds that are just dead and just sort of empty and vacuous and like this, all these collapsed societies. You can even tie it back to stuff like the, the uh, Telosians back in, in, you know, obviously in the cage and in uh, right. the menagerie and stuff like that. You have this idea of like a fallen universe. You have stuff like, for example, uh, the gamesters of, of Triskillian. Where you have these society that's just full of brains in jars that are watching people fight for their own amusement. You can go to stuff like Return to Tomorrow or or the other one with the, the with Sargon's people where you have like the um no, sorry, Return to Tomorrow is Sargon's people, where you have the brains and mm. globes. Or even stuff like, for example, uh, by any other name, where you have the Kelvins, which are so alien that they cannot actually manifest to human beings. You have this sort of like we don't, we don't have the budget to see that, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a fact of it as well. But it also feels very much like in keeping with the the early first season that gave us like these sort of Lovecraftian horrors like you know for example um you're thinking of Trelane who is like this all-powerful omnipotent figure who turns out to be just a god or like uh, turns out to be like just a kid of a god or kid of gods but you also have like Charlie X who's removing people's faces and it turns out that he was adopted by a bunch of races that had evolved to a higher plane of existence and you do have that sort of weird book ending there where it it doesn't it's kind of strange that at this point like what we conventionally think of as being Star Trek is like largely the Coon era where you have like Vulcans, Federation, Starfleet, Klingons, you have alliances, you have this idea of space caught in Cold War. All of that seems to retreat very quickly and it's very disorienting watching it. You'd almost feel like it should go from those early first season episodes into Lucas and then on to Coon as like a logical evolution. And I mean, I say that like I adore a couple of the Lucas episodes. I absolutely love them, but they feel very strange when you're watching them in progression. It's interesting. I do wonder if that is a kind of a course correction, maybe, for Lucas, because he's like, well, Roddenberry didn't like what Kuhn was doing. Let me kind of go back to what he was doing earlier. It's just, yeah. you know, speculation. I don't know. But uh, but I, I do see what you mean. The, the, the progression, to see, it, it, that is interesting. It, it seems like these episodes would fit more of a bridge yeah. to the, the Coon era of Star Trek than otherwise. Because, you know, the original series is notorious for, you know, people watching out of order, you know, yeah. syndication, all that. You don't think about, you know, the, the progression of the show. Yeah. And, you know, I, I look at these lists of, of the, uh, the Lucas era, and you, you see episodes like The Ultimate Computer, right? Yeah. One of the best episodes of the show, fan favorite, right? Same yeah. thing with Piece of the Action. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I am a fan of the immunity syndrome. Some of those episodes that a lot of people don't really talk about, but yeah. it, is, it is a great episode, I think. Uh, but then you're right. Then you get episodes like, well, Games of Triskelion. And that one, iconic as anything in Star Trek, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not a fan of that, though, because I feel like it's like it contributed to so <laughs> many cliches I got, you know, about the show. And like th- 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 that episode can be summed up by one clip. And it's like when when. <laughs> What's her? What's the? What's her name? Shayna with, with the blonde hair. With sorry, with the green hair. Yes. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. And so, so Kirk, Kirk like kisses her, and it's this emotional swell of music. Then he punches her in the face. I'm like, this. <laughs> this is what people think Captain Kirk does. By the way, not wearing a shirt. Right. Yeah, he's, just why he's doing this. And she's I'm wearing like, this, this sort of like metallic sort of bikini thing as well. Uh, yes. This is why the Kelvin timeline is the way it is. <laughs> episodes like this, right? My argument about the Gamesters of Triskillian is that it's Matt Groening's favorite Star Trek episode. Like, it's the one, like, because it's the one when you think about, like, I'll wager 400 Quatloos on the newcomer from, I think, yeah. Homer, Deep Space Homer, for example, or even, like, the brains in Futurama. It is. Well, that, if, this, if this gave us where no fan has gone before on Futurama, yeah. then that's fine. It's yeah. just, it's, it has earned its existence. <laughs> but anyway, Obsession, though, I really do like Obsession. And I think, to your point earlier, we had a, a Moby Dick esque tale. Uh, with Doomsday Machine, I think that the twist here is Kirk. It's our guy now yeah. who, who is Ahab instead of some other guy. So you have to kind of re-examine what's going on there. And, and they, they kind of got the they got the dynamics right this time around. Like whenever, and this is rare in the show where like Kirk kind of goes rogue and Spock and McCoy have to like team up and be like, yeah. what's, what's going on here, Jim? Uh, they did that in Conscience of the King, but it was so early in the show, they hadn't quite you know hammered out the dynamics. And as we were talking about earlier, I think that's, that's where the scene where McCoy's like sitting there drinking in sickbay and he offers Scott, Spock a drink, and he's like, oh, no wonder you ever conquered. And I think that's from Conscious yeah. of the King. So the, the dynamic there, whenever the triangle shifts a little bit, yeah. it, it's refreshing, and that's what happens in Obsession. And it does flesh out some backstory to Kirk, who had been kind of this, you know, all-American hero with, like, a, a blank slate uh, for, for, for a history. I, and I really do. I, I like Obsession, yeah. even though, yes, you could see that it's a copy of something that might have come before. It, the twist is, is the twist on the take is so different yeah. enough for... I don't. I don't see it as one of these. Oh, we did this before episodes. Yeah. And and to be clear, I should be should be very clear on this because we talked about Lucas coming in and sort of dealing with a train that was already like on the tracks, careening in a direction. Many of the scripts that he inherited would have like been in production or been in development before he took over production. So it's it's it is often hard to distinguish like a Coon idea from a you know from a, a sort of a you know a, Mer- a Meredith Lucas idea where you have like and and I kind of like part of me wonders like obsession because obsession like would have been in development under Kuhn. And so you would have got that recycled element. And I'm wondering, am I reading too much into it when I see like the, the you know, the, the soul, the, the vampire cloud as like a kind of a hark back to those first season monsters, like the salt vampire. That's true. Yeah. We've uh, had salt vampires. We've had clouds. We've had obsessed <laughs> captains. Let's put it on the blender. Yeah. And here we go. The obsession. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, and, and fill me in on this. Cause actually I, I, I'm not up on this bit of trivia. Why did Lucas not carry over, to the third season because I know he, uh, he was involved with the show, but he, he, you know, Fred Freiberger took yeah. over and I don't know if there's any discussion of, you know, maybe Lucas would stay and keep running the show or what, what was the deal there with the transition? I'm not entirely clear on that myself. I know that the issue with Assignment Earth, why, why Lucas didn't produce Assignment Earth is because they actually shut down production because the uh, network ordered an additional episode. It's like the sets were actually dark uh, for, I think, six mm. days between the last shooting on um, whatever the episode was before and the Mega Glory and getting to Assignment Earth. And that's why Roddenberry ran that. I'm not entirely sure about the third season and why that went to Freeburg as opposed to Lucas. Well, to your point there, Gene Roddenberry takes over the show. Uh, one-two punch of the Omega Glory and Assignment Earth. Now, 
I, I have defended the Omega Glory earlier in the, in, the, in this podcast. I but I, I do see its problems. I guess I don't know. I would I wouldn't call that a guilty pleasure because I do think it is a very entertaining episode of Star Trek. But I do see a lot of the fundamental flaws. It's it's like all of the all of the alternate Earths and all that has like come to a head now. It's kind of it's like it's the last drop that tips it over the bucket. <laughs> it's like all right, guys, <laughs> yeah. we have an exact duplicate of the U.S. Constitution, which our captain, by the way, knows word for word. <laughs> <laughs> so good for you, Kurt. Uh, I guess because of course he does. A, <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, being such an Abraham Lincoln fanboy about you know he, he's obsessed about all uh, talk about obsession. Uh, he's obsessed with American <laughs> history. So I don't know. I I still like it. It is one of the episodes I have probably rewatched the most, and it's not on my top ten list or anything. Don't get me wrong. But if I if I'm gonna sit down and watch a, a random episode of Star Trek, there's a very high percentage it might be that episode. So that's all I'm gonna say there. I feel really awful because like the Omega Glory is quite possibly my least favorite episode of Star Trek ever. And I mean Shades of Grey exists. <laughs> and, and like those those first season episodes of the next generation exist. And alliances exist. Um but yeah, the Omega Glory is not and I feel uh, uh, I understand why you like it, and I I think it's you know, every people like what they like, and that's that's great. And I'm not pretending that my taste is absolute or anything like that. It's not like, Zach, I've lost all respect for you because you like the Omega Glory or anything like that. But I <laughs> I, I really, really, really dislike it. And, and the reason that I dislike it is because it's it's a lot of, like, the stuff that I associate with the worst excesses of Roddenberry. And, like, and again, like, the guy started Star Trek and he kept it alive and he cultivated the fan base that made, like, later iterations of the show possible. And so he deserves all the credit in the world for that. But on the other hand, that's weighed against the fact that, like, Roddenberry understood that it was highly unlikely that Star Trek would get a third season. Um, And he does it again. He does it again in the third season with Turnabout Intruder. But Roddenberry seems to pick strategically the worst possible, like, last episodes of Star Trek imaginable. Whenever Star Trek is on the cusp of being cancelled and Gene Roddenberry is given, like, the job of writing a script that will be like, well, this is the moment of Star Trek that could possibly stand in perpetuity, like, forever, because we don't know this thing's coming back. We don't know there's going to be an animated series. We don't know there's going to be a feature film franchise. This is your one, like, cherry on top. What are you going to write about? And he's like, well, I'm going to write about how women can't be starship captains. And you're like, what? Um, and, and with the Omega Glory, it's like, well, I'm going to write this uh, justification about how... Um, the America, America needs to go into Vietnam and protect it from the influence of the yellow race. You're like, whoa! <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and, like, and he does, like, he does this repeatedly. And again, this is the thing where the, you have the two sides of Roddenberry, where on the one hand, I believe he genuinely did want people to be better than they were. He genuinely believed that people were capable of great things. And that, you know, sort of like that Superman speech about just lacking a light to show us the way that Star Trek could be something that inspired us to be better than we are. And that's a very romantic vision. And I, I believe that vision of Star Trek. And that's weighed against the reality of, of Roddenberry at times being an incredibly cynical operator. And I'm talking about things like, for example, the famous, um, would you mind shilling for this ornament that I'm going to put in my Lincoln Industries catalog, you know, in um, Truth, is there in Truth No Beauty? Which Leonard Nimoy apparently nearly walked off set when he had to hawk this piece of merchandise for Roddenberry. Um, Now available at Lincoln Enterprises. Yeah, that's it. And the thing is, that's tied to, like, that's tied to infinite diversity and infinite combinations. So you have, like, the perfect representative of, like, you know, the conflict of Roddenberry, where it's so beautiful, so elegant, and so idyllic, 
and yet so crass and so like hard of the old paradox of the man isn't that, it, right? that is it's indeed wonderful. and you have that with the omega glory and with assignment earth as well the two last scripts and the omega glory was produced by meredith lucas but you get a sense like watching it that there's like meredith lucas probably wasn't going to be the guy to say uh boss you can't do that um in the same right, way that- <laughs> Gene, we're going to give you this one okay we're yeah. writing down you can yeah. have it yeah. In the same way that, yeah, Kuhn would be like, oh, no, 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 there's no gap, he says as he frantically types in his typewriter, hoping to hit a deadline. Um, Meredith Lucas probably wouldn't like, yeah, we'll, we'll take the script. We, we appreciate it. We value your input. Um, and the assignment Earth, both of which are really craven. And as much as I dislike the Omega Glory, assignment Earth is a special type of cynical. It's an incredibly, incredibly cynical piece of television. Because again, like Star Trek is practically cancelled at this point. In fact, like, going into this, link, you know, sort of, uh, Roddenberry would have, could have assumed that the Omega Glory would be the last episode of Star Trek, but then NBC come along and say, hey, we're going to give you another episode. Now, most producers would be like, wow, last chance. This is my last chance to take this thing that I care about a great deal and to explain to the world why, why I love it so much. Or even if it's not that, to say, look, I've been working with these actors for two years now. They've been working their ass off on this thing. This production team, they're fantastic. Let's give them one swan song. Let's give them something to go out on that they can be really proud of, that they can sort of like cherish. And people say, you remember that thing we did? That was amazing. And what does Roddenberry do with that one last chance to show people what Star Trek can be? Backdoor pilot for a television show that's never going to be produced. Yeah. And it's like, and he makes Shatner and Nimoy. And again, like, you can argue all you want about, like, the egos in play, like, the conflict between Shatner and Nimoy and Shatner's desire to be the center of attention. Like, he was the lead of the show, and this is his last hurrah. And, like, basically, the script is written in such a way that it's like, oh, by the way, we're going to introduce you to this guy who's possibly going to get a TV show that's going to give me a sustainable stream of income. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be your last memory of Star Trek, Shatner. And it's, it just seems so craven and so cynical and so horrific. And I just, I loathe it. And I really, really dislike it. And I understand that there's a lot to like there. This sort of, like, pulpy Mission Impossible style, like, time travel story about, like, human, you know, human history and the idea of influencing human history. And there's a cat that's also, like, a super sexy woman with a necklace. It's like, there's a lot to like here. But it's also just the underlying cynicism of it all just eats at me in a way that, like, it just, I, I really dislike it. I'm sorry. Sorry, that turned into a bit of a rant. Well, I, I've never really been a fan of Assignment Earth. It felt like, I mean, it, it felt odd to me even as as a younger person not knowing all the behind-the-scenes factors involved in its production. I'm like, why? Where is the agency of the Enterprise crew here, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, once they beat down to Earth, they're just like kind of watching Gary say, whoa, whoa, whoa. only he can stop it, right? They're watching <laughs> him use M5 over there, the redressed M5 to, uh, to, to save the day. But, yeah, I... Uh, I don't know if it, if you remove all of the behind the scenes drama, then do you think it works as an episode? Not as an episode of Star Trek, and not as an ep- like this is the thing. It's trying to be two things. Or, or I was going to say like, it's trying to be two things. It's trying to be a backdoor pilot and an episode of Star Trek, and I don't think it works as either because it's got too much assignment Earth in it. As you point out, the crew have no agency in it to the point where like you're almost expecting the episode to end with Kirk turning to the camera and saying. If only there were a way I could tune in weekly to see the continued adventures of Gary Seven. Um, but it also, like, it also has just enough Kirk, Spock, and, like, backstory in it that it doesn't feel like a successful launch of Assignment Earth. And, like, you can do a backdoor pilot, like, successfully. There are countless examples in the history of television. But those work because they integrate, like, the two shows very, very well. 
You know, they integrate the two. Like, they don't necessarily feel like... This feels like a really... Even watching it, and you're right that, like, not knowing the behind-the-scenes stuff, this is like, what? why is everybody talking so much about this Gary Seven guy? Like, uh, you know, why can't Kirk be doing... Have the same role in the story that I'm watching as this Gary Seven guy? Like, this is bad writing 101. This is the sort of thing that, like, <laughs> Pil- like Pillar... We talked about Pillar a little bit. When Pillar would come into The Next Generation, like, the first thing he'd do is say... Under no circumstances should you write a guest character like Gary Seven because he removes the agency of the characters we're actually here to watch. And so, yeah, I don't think it works even as a piece of television outside of, like, the sheer cynicism around it. Yeah, that's an excellent point you brought up about ending the seasons of Star Trek because even even going back to season one, you know, the yeah. shows have been renewed at this point. Like, season two and three, you're right, they kept extending it. Like, okay, yeah. we'll give you a couple more episodes, a couple more episodes, right? So so there was always this question mark, and then, like, a final reprieve, and then a final cancellation at the end. But even if you, if you look back, all the way back to season one, right, they knew they were renewed. Yeah. But the last episode of season one is Operation Annihilate. Yeah. Like, I have this really great argument about how, like, the first season of Star Trek is so fantastic because generally it's like an arc that goes upwards. Like, as a season, you can, like, you can point to early episodes that I love, like Balance of Terror, which I think is a perfect 10. But as a rule, like, the first season of Star Trek just keeps getting better and better and better and better and better. And, like, there's a point where you're hitting, like, Devil in the Dark, Errand of Mercy, City on the Edge of Forever, and you're like, wow, I'm going to tune in next week for the season finale, and it's going to be amazing! And it's like, nope, nope, it's uh, it's a bunch of pancakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so no, it, it is. And like, the weird thing about it is, though, that like, despite the fact like Operation Annihilate is not a good episode of television, it's the best season finale of the original Star Trek by a considerable distance. Oh, boy, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would I would say there are only three bad episodes of the original series first oh. season. Miri, yeah, the alternative factor, yeah, okay, and Operation Annihilate. I, I can't think of any more. Right. I wouldn't even go that hard on on Operation Annihilate. Being honest, like I would, like I, it's not a great episode, but it's functional and it's interesting and it's weird. Like I like the well, weird. Okay, episode. it starts well, yeah, uh, with the uh, like plague of insanity and stuff like that, which is a yeah, very you don't know what's going on. There's yeah. there's family drama with Kirk, but all that is kind of forgotten. <laughs> I forgot because... about I forgot about Samuel Kirk with the mustache. Sorry, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Stanley Kirk. <laughs> William Shatner getting more screen time <laughs> yeah. uh, as as his dead brother's corpse with a mustache. But here's here's the biggest problem with that episode is they make this whole thing about Kirk's nephew and his, his sister-in-law and his brother and, and then he has an orphan nephew now on the ship about halfway through. Don't talk about him at all. Spock goes blind. Yeah. Spock gets his sight back. Let's make a joke about it at the end on our next adventure. <laughs> I'm like, is there is no weight <laughs> To like, you know, like, process should, the loss should, of your brother. That's like, <laughs> yeah, there should be a Sydney on the Edge of Forever esque ending, melancholy, yeah. and Kirk when he's just his brother and his sister in law are dead. Yeah, and nope, you just smocking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your Vulcan crazy powers. Anyway, that and then uh, it's a, that and the pancakes, as you said, that that's just kind of uh, undercut the episode for me. Yeah, no, I love the idea that like Kirk has finally just had enough grief. Like halfway through, halfway through, like Operation Nihilate, it's like I lost the woman I love. My my sister in law and brother are dead. My nephew is dealing with trauma. It's like I really don't want to have to deal with this. Can we just go back to bantering? Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Well, th- there there you have it, guys. That that's, that's season one <laughs> of the US. Now, as you said, uh, you know, season two 
not as good as season one on the whole, but the hires are high. Yeah. And the hires are high. The highs are higher. Yeah. <laughs> and the lows are lower. Yeah. You know, if, you know, for, you got your cat spas in there. You know, you got your. Hey, I like uh, cat spa. You, uh, you like cat. You I'm the one person. Friend. I'm the one person. There's one of me. Okay. I don't right, adore so, it. Well, I, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll give it credit for uh, the alien design at the end. Yeah. I know people say, "Oh, it's just puppets and stuff." Again, original series swinging for the fences. Sometimes yeah. they hit, sometimes they miss. They're very alien creatures, as as like <laughs> Sylvia and Korob are supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, everything else about that episode, not good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan. Like again, you got to keep in mind that I, I like I'm Irish, so I would have grown up with like the UK tradition of science fiction, which have been stuff like Doctor Who and like The Prisoner and The Avengers and stuff. So this is like the, the fact that it like looks cheaper, the fact that it's compromised or weird is like it's a selling point to me. Like, again, like, this is the thing where I absolutely adore the immunity syndrome because it's so weird. It's just, there's nothing else like it. And I kind of, like, I, I'm i always sympathetic to those episodes of Star Trek, particularly the original series, where it's just, like, you can tell that it's, there's, a, like, a level of almost desperation to it, where it's like, what the hell are we going to do this week, boys? And I kind of, like, I admire the fact that they land on, let's dangle the Enterprise on top of a flame for a Halloween special. Now, admittedly, that's Ooh. maybe not the first episode of your second season, but still. <laughs> What what is the, the the choices right of of what they open and close seasons with? I I, I say I mean broadcast wise, a mock time. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. premiering that one. And of course, Catspaw they delayed it for for Halloween and whatnot. But then you look at the end of the season and it's like you know, uh, assignment or three kidding. And I, I I look to season three and I say if you chop off the first and last episode, season three is so much better regarded and remembered because you lose Spock's brain, which is although I don't think it's the worst episode, is the most notorious episode yeah. of Star Trek. And then you, you lop off Turnabout Intruder, which has lots and lots of issues. I don't think it's as awful as a lot of people say, but it has lots and lots of deep issues in the concept of the story. So you get rid of those, and you're like, yeah, okay. You start with you know you start with Enterprise incident, and you end with All Our Yesterdays. I'm like, oh, those are some pretty good episodes. Okay, you know? and then, and then yeah. you have a pretty decent third season. Anyway, <laughs> so so all that to say, you know, to, to wrap up our, our discussion, Darren, and this is a point you raise in your article as well, which I think is really interesting. Uh, if Star Trek had been canceled after the second season. If there had only been two years of the show, would it have the legacy it has today? Would we have gotten an animated series, a movie series, spinoffs, or would it would it have been that quaint, forgotten sci-fi show from the '60s? You know, and been like a I don't know. Everything else is being rebooted nowadays, <laughs> so I'm sure someone would have rebooted it by now. Yeah, but people <laughs> but, are like, "What's uh, Star Trek? Can't we just watch like Lost in Space Discovery?" And he's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, lost in space discovery. <laughs> so, I mean, do you think there was enough there from the first two seasons of Star Trek to to carry it on in the way we saw it in as it happened in, in history? Well, it's interesting because I was on last year talking about like singing the praise of the third season because Darren mm-hmm. loves nothing more than a contrary position. Like Cat's Paw is a good episode, but you're, um... not, you're gonna tell me that's right. You're gonna tell me that Omega Glory is your least favorite episode and then defend Cat's Paw. Why don't I, why oh, don't yeah. I have you on? Why don't I even talk to you about Star Trek? This is, this, this, this is why we only do this once a year, Zach. Um, <laughs> and so like we, we discussed last year, we talked about the third season and how like that's surprisingly influential and stuff like that and how a lot of what we associate with Star Trek sort of came in in the third season. And so like, Taking that for granted and acknowledging that if the show did come back, it would be radically different without a third season. 
I do think that there's enough of a basis there, particularly through the work of Kuhn, uh, in terms of, like, he created a universe that included, like, the Federation, the Romulans, the Klingons, and stuff like that, and this idea of, like, Vulcans as a member of the Federation, and this tension that existed, that I can imagine a string of, like, tie-in novels, like the Bantam novels, or even the Pocket novels later on, fan fiction, stuff like that, that can build on that, um, and I could sort of extrapolate from that. And it feels like if you are just saying, like, Star Trek, like, as a foundation for stuff you do later on... I think there is enough there that you could sort of, you could bounce on. I don't know if it would have had enough traction in terms of like, because it's easier to sell 79 uh, episodes into syndication or 78 episodes into syndication than it is to, um, you know, sell. What, what were we at at the end of season two? 50 odd? 50? Uh, well, there, there's 20, I believe there's 24 episodes in the third season. So 79 minus 24 would be 55. 55. So 55. I imagine that would be a harder... (laughs) We do maths good. Um, But I imagine that would be a harder sell into syndication than the 79, because obviously 100 is your target. But if it did make it... two-year mission to seek out new life, (laughs) new civilization. Very abridged. Um, But I do imagine that if it did get past that hurdle, like if it was able to get into syndication for 55 episodes, I can see this proving a basis for a revival i don't think it would be exactly the same as you know the next generation the motion picture the animated series even uh, but i do think that it would be recognizably the same we might wonder why for example the klingons are still douchebags um you know we might wonder for example uh why spock's dad is still a jerk when he shows up on the you know in the next generation supposed to being venerated sort of hero we might wonder why yeah captain kirk wasn't more of a ladies man um, but we you know we'd sort of we would have these. I think that you would have a basis to build on. I don't think you'd end up with a, a you know a show that looks exactly like the Next Generation or a franchise that looks exactly like the Ocean Picture franchise. But I could see it happening. The only issue is those fifty-five episodes into syndication versus seventy-nine. But that's a question for somebody who probably knows more about the mechanics of syndication than I do. Well, even the Romulans, right? They'd only had Balance of Terror, and then, as you said earlier, they're in the Devil Years, so you don't see them. The Enterprise yeah. incident is such an iconic uh, yeah. episode, and, and we've talked about it many times with Stanford, but how that ripples throughout you know, the, the course yeah. of Star Trek history, just the concepts and, and it presented in that episode. And would they even be the Romulans. You know, one of the iconic uh, races of Star Trek without that episode? Yeah, well, they'd probably be a trivia question. They'd be like the first... <laughs> no, because they are, like, the Romulans are notable because they're the first real empire, the first real equivalent that, like, Starfleet and Kirk encounter in the show. So they would undoubtedly be, like, a sort of something that fans would bring back. And because they look like the Vulcans, I imagine they'd be brought back as well. But yeah, you're right, they wouldn't be brought back in the same way. And I imagine that they'd go in very different directions because the Romulan commander in the Enterprise incident is a defining character. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we talked about it when we talked about the third season, like the Enterprise incident is notable because the first time in Star Trek that you get the acknowledgement that the Klingons and the Romulans exist together when the Federation isn't looking at either of them. They have like object permanence, like the Enterprise incident introduced the concept of like empire permanence. And uh, yeah, so I, I think you would have the Romulans about. I don't think they'd be the Romulans we know today because I can't see Star Trek fandom being so like focused on trivia and focused on detail and focused on like you know minutiae there's no way that they would leave like well they're the first other empire and they all look like spock and just sort of like let's brush that aside but i don't know well there has been fun talking about season two (laughs) of the original series uh if people want to find you out there on the internet and where can they find you 
Um, you can find me at the movie blog, which I think Zach referenced there. Um, I also co-host a podcast called The Two Fifty, where we go through the top two hundred fifty movies of all time on the Internet Movie Database. Um, when this episode is released, we'll be releasing the following Saturday with either City of God uh, with Anya O'Connor from the Irish Independent, or we'll be releasing Slenderman um, with myself and Andrew discussing that uh, very memorable horror movie from earlier this year that I am very going to talk about um but yeah i also you can find me online at darren Otis company i've published a couple of books a critical history of the x-files and of christopher nolan as a critical study of his films they're available from amazon barnes and noble wherever good books or even bad books are sold um so if you want to want to give them a go there um i'd really appreciate it or even just ask your local library to order them in um every little helps it's a it's a huge deal because it means i can continue to do stuff like write books like that and that means a lot to me so i would really really appreciate it also people seem to like them though i don't know if they're just saying that to me so, you know, it, it all bounces out. But, uh, yeah, you can find me online at those places. Well, Darren, I'll, I'll tell you, man, uh, and I'm just saying this because you're here. Like, if, if you, I know there's, like, hundreds of Star Trek books, right? But if you, if you like, publish all your blog, Star Trek blogs in a book, I would totally buy it. And I'm sure many Star Trek fans would as well. Because, as you can hear here, guys, uh, Darren, is, he, he is just a, a encyclopedia of Star Trek knowledge and has some hot takes as well. So, you know, with the combination of those <laughs> yeah, two, all the hot it's takes. a winning formula. <laughs> <laughs> cat's paw that's that's the book it's just why cat's paw is great and everybody else is wrong by darren mooney um oh, there we go. yeah no that's not going to be the book <laughs> what, what do you think of the alternative factor i really dislike the alternative factor but i forgive it its flaws because it's just a bad episode my my issues with the omega glory are like more fundamentally philosophical they amount to this is what the creator of Star Trek thought that Star Trek should be at its most distilled essence. And somebody fought day and night for like two years to get this on screen. And it's like, so, so that, like it, it is that weight that exists for me. The alternative factor, when I watch it, it's like, well, look, I understand that everybody working on this, it was basically, I don't know if I can swear, but it was a cluster, you know, of a situation. And like, so the fact that this got out in front of television, I can't hate it because it's like, well, you guys, you certainly made an episode. Um, whereas with, with the Omega Glory, there's a sense of like purpose behind it that gives it more weight for me. Same thing with the Turnabout Intruder, where like I would feel less bad if that were an episode that were like cobbled together under impossible circumstances. But the fact that it's trying to say something makes it <laughs> a lot harder for me to hate it. It's like Threshold. Like many, many Star Trek fans would consider Threshold to be like the worst episode Star Trek ever produced. And I can understand that, but I find like alliances in, in that second season to be a much worse episode because like Threshold is a mess in a way that like lots of other episodes are messes. It's just like the perfect cacophony of all this mess happening simultaneously. Whereas with alliances, there's a sense that somebody actually sat down, thought this thing through from beginning to end. And sorry, I'm wincing. Zach can see me wincing when I talk about this. Um, but like somebody sat down, worked it through from beginning to end and said, yeah, this, this is a statement. This is what we want to do. This is like, this is an important episode with exclamation marks behind it. And that somehow makes its badness worse for me. Yeah, I, that's the one with the Kazon. We find out that they were a slave race of another race, right? Yes. And Janeway's like, the- yeah, Janeway's like, wow, I can never get on with any of these Delta Quadrant species. Wow, thank God you white slave people are able to enjoy some after-dinner conversation with us. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's that's an episode you that know, I have strong feelings I was of. about to defend it, 
but you kind of disarm me with that sentence. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but, but you know, the, you have the whole Godfather 3 kind of thing. Yeah, with the window. Yeah. And, with the- yeah. <laughs> so, I, don't know. I, I think back to season two of Voyager, I was like, you know what? That, at least that kind of progressed the Kazon story yeah. for them. But that's it. I'll have to, you know, you, you kind of got me there with that, <laughs> Sorry, with that take. So, anyway, all these hot takes and more available on the movie blog. Go check. This is why I love Darren's takes on Star Trek. I love talking to him about Star Trek. Well, we'll have to do it sooner than another year, Darren. This has been a lot of fun. And, and so. to, be, to be clear, when people are listening to me and yelling at the podcast, it's like, I, I believe this. You don't have to believe this. You're entitled to believe that I'm wrong. Um, and I respect IDIC. that. Yeah, All right, that's now exactly, available yeah. from Lincoln Enterprises for $14.99. <laughs> also, you know, just uh, I looked it up while we were talking because as been established, I'm notoriously bad at remembering episode numbers for standard orbit. Last time Darren was on was 196, episode titled Star Trek Origins Season 3. So if you enjoyed our conversation here and you had a chance to go back and listen to that one, go back in the back catalog and check it out. So... Season 2 of Star Trek, the original series, isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. But it's the moment, literally the moment that Halle Berry opens her mouth, that the dialogue in this film goes completely south. Because yeah. every single thing that she and Bond say from that point is a pun to each other. Yeah. Earl Grey. I, I do wonder if a bunch of them were holographic because we know part mm. of that room is holographic, but at the same time... <laughs> Bruce can't believe we're talking about holographic cats, is that Holographic it? cats. There's a holographic iguana in Voyager. <laughs> but my other theory, of course, is he has so many cats at this time because if you take my earlier theory about there being multiple spots, Gaina doesn't have a lot of luck with cats, so he's just... <laughs> You know, he's he's got like 10 of them. So wait, are you saying that all the cats in his Cambridge place are all named Spot? (laughs) Well, I am now. (laughs) He's like, Jordy, welcome to my place. Oh, don't sit on Spot. Oh, and Spot's over there on the mantle. Oh, and there's another Spot over there. My place is filled with Spots. (laughs) Data's cats are like the queue. It's just the Spot continuum. They're all called Spot. The Edge. A Star Trek Discovery podcast. And I decided every week for the rest of the run of Discovery, I would dedicate myself to not only that show, but also to giving back to the fans to some extent in any way I I could uh, with these episode posters. Warp 5. Okay, so Frankenstein kills a couple people. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, kills an old man, kills an old woman, scares a bunch of people, goes on the run, scares some girl guides. Right? <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, some Girl Scout guides, yep. Girl Scout guides mm. takes her cookies. <laughs> yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. 
You can also contact us through Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at TrekFM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs... You can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding on the Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Trekkie01D. Celebrating Trek Tuesdays. That's tomorrow, everybody. Wear your Trek. <laughs> yes, and use the hashtag Trek Tuesday. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.